Hello and welcome to Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast. This time with the full panel of some of your favorite hosts of all time. It's our uh, indescri indescribable Evan Ginsberg and also wrestling's premier photographer Mike Leno. And and today we have a very special show. Especially it was worth bringing Evan Ginsberg on to remember the uh, fantastic wrestler known as superstar Billy Graham. And, and both uh, Mike and, and Evan have a lot of stories about him. So I'd love to, to hear more about you guys and what your thoughts were about the passing of this uh, all-time legend. Let me just say this quickly, though, and I'm going to Evan to talk first. We both knew him. We knew him for decades. And Billy Graham started wrestling, his first wrestling, when Jerry Graham brought him in in 1970, early 1970. And it kind of fizzled. They sent him up to Stu Hart. I'll talk about that later. And then he returned. And in L.A., he debuted the Superstar Graham gimmick and the tie-dye. So let me throw to Evan first because we had him on. Ev, we had him on at least two, three times on Legends. Yeah, on our old radio show. Um, let me start with this. I mean, I, I could talk about Billy Graham for hours. Um, he was one of my childhood heroes. And... My father was a New York City taxi driver. He drove a yellow cab 27 years, 14 hours a day, six days a week, a true lifelong New Yorker. And he used to say to me, there's only three people that stop traffic in New York City because we're so jaded. All the stars are here, Broadway, you know, TV, etc." He said, Julie Newmar, who back then nobody had a body like her, Muhammad Ali, who was the most famous person in the world, and superstar Billy Graham, because nobody looked like him. You have to understand, when Billy Graham came to WWE, excuse me, WWF, I should say, in 1975, you didn't have a gym on every corner. You didn't have fitness coaches bombarding the Internet. Billy Graham looked like he dropped from another planet. Nobody looked like him between the body and the tie dyed and, and the, you know, gorgeous George meets Muhammad Ali patter, you know, the unbelievable promos. Billy Graham was unique, unique. And he, he of course, influenced Hulk Hogan, who admits it. You know, Hulk Hogan was uh, Vince's meal ticket when he expanded worldwide. He influenced Jesse Ventura, he influenced Scott Steiner, Steve Strong. I could go on and on and on, the influence this guy had. So when the fans, you know, the ignorant fans, the obsessives do the, oh, he just punched and kicked, they have no idea the charisma off the charts when you were sitting at Madison Square Garden, February 2nd, 1976. It was the coldest day of the year. It was like below, it was like two degrees outside or whatnot. It was bitter cold. And, and you know, there was all kinds of issues with public transportation and whatever. The garden was sold out. The Felt Forum packed thousands of people in on closed circuit because Billy Graham was there to wrestle Bruno. People have no idea. When these two guys walked down the aisle without music, without special effects, without, you know, just charisma. The building shook, the building shook. And, you know, don't badmouth Billy Graham to me. I'm the wrong guy because, you know, the guys who do the, oh, Bruno and, and Pedro and, 
And uh, Billy Graham, they just punched and kicked. They're just ignorant because they have no idea. And they also have no idea the mindset of a 1975 fan. You know, for the most part, we were marks. For the most part, we were blue collar. You know, so even if you had a sense that this was a work, suspension of disbelief. Every time Bruno got kicked or punched or bled, you felt it. This is what the fanboys don't get when they go, oh, these guys were just meat and potatoes, mediocre wrestlers. Yeah, Dory Funk Jr. could wrestle circles around a Billy Graham or a Holly Race could wrestle circles around a Bruno. But that's not the point. It's not the point. They don't understand how great these guys were, how great these guys were. And it, and it hurts me even to say it in the past tense, were, you know, to wrap your head around the fact that your childhood heroes, are, uh, one by one, all going, gone, you know, it's, it's very, um, very disheartening, to say the least. I'm looking for the right adjective. But uh, it hurt me when Billy Graham died. I mean, I also you know, knew him. We, we did 350 days with him. I, I interviewed him one-on-one -on -one live for a different project, not 350 days. Mike and I uh, interviewed him multiple times. You know, I'm talking face-to-face. -face. You know, I, I, I've sat with the man and he was always gracious and kind and friendly. And, you know, I judge people the way they treat me. And, and I can't say a bad word about this man. Mike? Uh, uh. He was so colorful. The, the thing people don't get is nearly every wrestler from our day, from 60s, late 60s on, that's the real golden era. They all had aura and they exuded it. And when Evan talks about his father's, you know, Billy could stop traffic. When he came Can't stop out, traffic. It, it, legit. Legit. Yeah. He did it in Japan in the IW. He went to that famous area uh, by... Um, Shibuya Station, the JR subway line. I've been to a zillion times. And that's where the biggest masses of people during the work, you know, the morning work day off the subways and everything, where all, all the, it's the electronic, you know, district with all the signboards. And it, it's often like a destination shot for films because it's the hugest sea of humanity. But he caused all these people like a near riot. They all stopped what they're doing and clamoring around him. When he came to Keele Auditorium in 77, I was there purposely and I'd gotten a lift with fabulous Moolah, Vicky Williams, Sandy Parker from Dallas. They were going there. And anyway, so they, uh, I rode with them. But Billy, when he got to the Chase Hotel uh, uh, early in the day, about two, three in the afternoon before the Keele Auditorium show that Friday night with the wrestling at the Chase TV show in that building, that venue the next day. But we're talking at the hotel itself, the hotel, it's hard to describe it, but they had wrestling TV studio in there dedicated to Sam Munchnick's show with Larry Matisic. Billy enters in there. Everybody stopped what they were doing. I'm talking hundreds of people from the entire hotel, all these marks and other, some of the other wrestlers, they all cordoned around him. He couldn't even get to the front desk to check in. That's 1977. And Ev, I told you about this. Listen to this card. On top, Harley Race, Dory Jr., and our Broadway for the Harley's title. Then Jack Briscoe dropping the Missouri State title to Dick Slater. Dick the Bruiser team with Bo Brazil in the opener. But 
tried WF, I think it was Billy's debut for Munchnik. He only wrestled maybe two times, possibly three, if that, for Munchnik and Keel against fellow heel Jimmy Valiant, then in his prime. Defending his WF title against Jimmy Valiant, they start out as heels, and the crowd so loved both of these guys, so colorful, they turned them face. Now, you can talk about a double turn, but there's never been a wrestling double turn with both guys go from heel-heel, which is a very rare match, to face-face. And Billy said afterwards in the back, we just went with it, and we're having a blast. And so colorful. And bless you. Let me get to his very quickly. Um, so uh, Jerry Graham got fired by the Sheik. He's driving from Detroit after... He bugged uh, our Los Angeles promoter, Mike LaBelle, Booker, Jules Strongbow. Could he have some shots? You know, blah, blah, blah. So he's driving all the way from Detroit to Los Angeles to the Olympic. Well, to, that's where Mike LaBelle's office was. And he drops into a gym in Phoenix. He was already looking for somebody who could play a grandbrother, a new grandbrother. Sees Billy working out. I'm making this really short because I've talked to both of them. And this was the story they told me. I don't have Billy Graham's book with me now to reference, but so all straight from memory. And he convinces him he could make some dough with him. Let's just give it a shot. If it doesn't work, you can come back to Arizona. So he brings him in, he dies, you know, gives him two weeks of training. He dyes his hair, both of them jet black. So that's the new Graham brothers. And uh, Billy was, you know, just really super duper green. So long story short, our booking team of Jules Strongbow, Charlie, Mr. Moto sent him up to Stu Hart where Stu sort of trains him half-assed, but stretches the shit out of him, sends him to Roy Shire as his first territory, where Roy books him as a heel, and Roy was master wrestler too, but you have these guys all training Billy Graham, the best of the best, Pat Patterson, Ray Stevens, Peter Mavia, Rocky Johnson, Pepper Martin, Pepper Gomez, and some others, uh, and Kenji Shibuya, and they're all working with Billy. Roy has him as a heel, and he puts the tag straps in our territory, San Francisco, my secondary. It was, you know, there were many NWA World Tag Championships. There was Detroit for Sheik. There was Mid-Atlantic one for the Crockett's. But this was Roy's. So he puts him on the heel pad and Ray. And he puts on the gimmick of the spirit of America on Billy Graham. So Billy came out at the beginning a couple of times with an American flag, even though he's a heel with the American flag, USA on his shirt, you know, way, way, way before any of the Jingo Vince McMahon Jr. stuff. And he's wearing a lightish brown leather chaps jacket with the thin leather strands hanging off the arms. Total hippie 70s look. Billy hated it. But anyway, then he comes back to us after a nice long run there. And uh, he helps turn Pat Patterson babyface before he leaves, comes into us late February, early March 1972 to Los Angeles, where he'd worked out for a few days. He, he wanted to go with a superstar tie-dye look. That's where he debuted it with finessing from primarily Jules Strongbow, genius booker, former wrestler. He's with us feuding with John and Chris Tolis. So the John Tolis book Evan and I are doing, we have a ton of material there just on Billy Graham alone because they were doing, you've thought the Blassie Tolis promos against each other were state-of-the-art. Well, Billy Graham is debuting all of this stuff, this uh, sort of a hybrid mix of Muhammad Ali with all of the gospel stuff that Billy had as a part of his life, uh, you know, growing up. Uh, and, you know, with a difficult childhood and all of this stuff. And it was like, you know, magic. So everybody to follow, like, 
somehow word got back to Dusty Rhodes when he turned face uh, with the Pac Song incident, the, the promos Billy Graham was doing. He was one of the first to copy Billy Graham's promos, you know, the too sweet to turn sour, all of that stuff. I'm pretty dang sure it was all Billy at the start. And, and you listen to later Hogan promos, obviously Jesse Ventura. In 75, 76, Kansas City and St. Louis, Jesse Ventura and Bob Remus, later Sergeant Slaughter, they start out with total knockoff uh, Billy Graham patter and, and the whole wardrobe. I mean, Sergeant Slaughter, that character, he had tie-dye on. So did Jesse Ventura. Kenny Patera, who I talked to twice uh, since Billy passed, you know, he took some of that patter too, especially when he went to Tri-WF later on. But, uh, you know, from there, Billy went to the AWA and even more went wild with the tie-dye. And uh, Vern Gagne wisely put him with Wahoo McDaniel, the veteran. So Billy had this, you know, he's with these brilliant minds, Roy Shire and then Vern Gagne. And then he goes, you know, so he's feuding with Wahoo McDaniel for like 13 months or a little less than that before he starts feuding with the Crusher and Billy Robinson and having a few AWA title matches with Vern. Then he does a couple of shots in Houston for Paul Bosch against where he's the heel. He's going against some total legends who were the faces in those big matches, main eventing at the Houston Coliseum for Paul Bosch against Don Leo Jonathan, Johnny Valentine, a babyface Mark Lewin, Neil Moskris. Billy met and worked with Neil Moskris before the Tri-WF, you know, the title defenses against Moskris in L.A., in 72, early uh, 72, as well as uh, Moskers in Houston. And then he does some shots for Eddie Graham where they bring him in as Eddie's brother. He starts teaming, even though he's a subtle heel with his son, Mike Graham, meaning Eddie's son, Mike Graham. And he turns on Mike Graham. I'm waiting for Jeff Bowden to give me more info on all of that. And then he starts feuding, you know, basically. So Ev, I wanna ask, we'll get back to more of his timeline because uh, he did two tours for IWE Japan, which is older than All Japan and New Japan. It was AWA affiliated. But when people, and you said it, and other people said 75, I thought it was a little bit later, like 76. Tell me if you can recall. He came in late 75. Um, I believe December 75, he made his debut with the God. And if, if memory serves, Ivan Koloff was in the cage with Bruno. And he beat Danucci in like nine seconds. And that set him up for the two matches with Bruno, January and February 76. So I, I just wrote a piece for Pro Wrestling Stories on Billy Graham's 10 greatest matches. And I listed that 1976 match as the greatest because it, it was, you know, new. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know... He wrestled Bruno at the Garden multiple times by the time he had won the belt and defended the belt, et cetera, so on. But um, when he first came in, I mean, the building shook. The building just shook. And they stopped the match on account of blood. And they didn't have a rematch. I mean, Billy had so much heat. They didn't, they didn't want him to lose to Bruno. So uh, Ernie Ladd came in for March 76 against Bruno and uh, so Billy was teaming with Ivan Koloff and one card at the garden in 76 it was Pari Tony Parisi and Bruno against Billy Graham and Ivan Koloff and mid-match Koloff and Billy Graham are shoving each other and they're, they're threatening to you know, you know break up and the place went nuts for Billy a hundred percent they were for Billy 
Mm. So he, he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right that they should have turned them face at some point. And he would have had a Hulkamania-like run 10 years earlier. It was just a, a missed opportunity. Every time you would see Billy Graham in a tag team or a six-man at the Garden, he would do the, you know, uh, the team is about to split up, but only it didn't. But he was teasing it. And they wasted the opportunity. He would have been huge. Finally, in the late 80s, Vince Jr. turned Billy face. And he uh, wrestled against Butch Reed in a steel cage match at the Garden. I, I believe it was 1986 or 7. But, you know, he, he his body had deteriorated by that point. He wasn't the same guy. And he just couldn't physically do what he could do, you know, 10 years earlier. Don't mind me. I have terrible allergies. But, uh anyway yeah for, for me you know um uh superstar billy graham the, the height of his career i was just way too young to really uh appreciate that i mean i was you know between five to eight years old when he was really doing his his major stuff and and so what i remember from his ring work was was the stuff from the 80s which was you know we i knew at the time that he was someone great but i never got to see any of his matches because back in 86 you know they still weren't putting a lot of stuff available to the public you couldn't just go onto the internet and see matches of his so i only knew about his stuff about how great he was and my my thought of superstar billy graham has always been he was a wrestler before his time and yeah. then ahead of of what was going to happen and it sort of got caught you know before the wave really hit and and he was too old to really appreciate everything the way that it was especially with with how it wound up with hulk hogan i was always wondering why do you think he was just was wrestling just not ready for a guy like superstar billy graham at the time that he came in or was it the other way around yeah, he was main event wherever he went. When he went to Houston, he immediately debuts in main events when he came into Los Angeles. And, and here's an interesting story. I don't know. Maybe Evan can answer that. But let me just say this about the asking Vince Sr. to turn him face because he was getting progressively more and more cheers. They loved all the color. Uh, Billy told both of us, and he told me many, many times face to face, you know, he when he debuted or when he was coming in, they put him with Ernie Roth, but his strength really was talking, you know, similar to Jesse Ventura was not good in the ring, but he could talk, not as good as Billy, uh, but it, it worked. It ended up working. They would play off each other. He just, you know, Billy said, why do I need to be paired with a, a manager or somebody to speak for me when I can already do that? You know, he knew that was one of his strengths, but it, it worked and Ernie meshed well with him. But Towards the tail end of what was a little over nine months, he held the, the title. Again, you have to remember, and Bruno told us, told us to both of us had it when we had him on uh, Legends and, and face to face, and anytime I was around Bruno, that Buddy Rogers did not draw as expected. Nothing against Buddy, who was like the epitome. He was the flair before, he was ahead of his time too, like ahead of his time type Ric Flair type performing wrestler, not like an athletic wrestler, Luthes, Carl Gottfried, Billy Robinson, Ganya, Stu Hart, great Malenko type, Booker Shooter. But uh, 
Buddy Rogers had not drawn as a heel champion, which was why Vince had to eat crow. Vince Sr. go and beg Bruno to come back to the Capital Sports from Toronto, where he was selling out the Maple Leaf for the two years of that ban. Vince Sr. had put on him a near two-year ban. Long story that Bruno had been complaining about Rogers taking liberties with enhancement talent and other people and acting like a, an asshole at the time in 61. But... Rogers was not drawn as champion as heel champion, so it sort of scared Vince Sr. off on having a long-term heel champion. He only had the transitionals of Ivan Koloff between Bruno to Pedro, Pedro to back to Bruno, Stan Stasiak, you know, just a matter of like seven, eight days for both of those two, Koloff and Stasiak. So Billy got the longest heel reign until really, say, you know, the more modern era and the Roman Reigns stuff. So he had, he knew apparently when he was going to win the title from Bruno and when he was going to drop it. That was set in stone. He's begging, you know, McMahon Sr. And he went to the point of creating some prototype T-shirts and, and also subtly doing little things without turning face himself, which would have gotten trouble with Vince Sr. when he's still got the strap on him. You know, he's like wearing uh, a lot of white to the ring, which he'd never done before towards the very end of his reign, which signifies babyface and the fans getting progressively louder and louder and louder, you know, after he had an amazing string of title offenses, uh, Dusty, all those matches with Moskris and Dusty, which was Billy's favorites. And also Ivan Putsky, where just, uh, you know, drop down toehold, uh, shoulder toss by Putsky standing up to, you know, the more massive Billy Graham, the place went ballistic. Bully Ray posted that. I do have to say, give kudos to him. He posted like, uh, I don't know how long it is, maybe uh, 35 seconds of just a couple of moves with Putsky and Billy Graham. The place is going, as Pat Patterson would, Patterson would say, banana for that. I mean, the garden, everybody's standing, going insane for something so simple. That. No one would react. No one would react to it today, but they sure did properly then. What people tend to forget is, you know, the people believed. They believed, so every move meant something. And you know, Johnny Valiant used to say, "Less is more." Now you have to do thirty-seven high spots off the top rope to get the same reaction as Billy Graham and Ivan Putsky having a test of strength, which is, you know, meat and potatoes basic and. Uh, this is what people don't grasp but when they watch, when a kid today, when I say kid, somebody in their 20s or 30s watches a match from the 70s. I've seen geniuses go, everything was boring in wrestling in the 70s. Everything. I mean, you know, because they don't get it. They, they, you know, it's like the ADD generation and they, they just, they weren't sitting there. They don't understand you know, the aura that these guys had, you know, they were like half gods to us. Bruno was like Saint Bruno and we loved him. We loved him. So when an Ivan Koloff or a Billy Graham beat a Bruno, oh my God, it's like the world had ended. I mean, people don't grasp any of this. They, uh, so they just, oh, they're just punching and kicking each other. And, and while I'm venting, let me add this, um, for, for the, for the, <laughs> obsessives with their 5,000 shoot interviews who, you know, were, were, were very critical of Billy Graham on his deathbed. He did this. He said this. Vince, Vince was there for him. The guy had a GoFundMe on his deathbed. How disgraceful 
that the WWE didn't take care of this guy. Without Billy Graham, there's no Hulk Hogan. Without Hulk Hogan, there's there's not the massive expansion to a billion-dollar corporation. This guy died with a GoFundMe. Absolutely disgraceful. So don't 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 give me the uh, Billy Graham did this and Vince was good to him and WWE WWE did a SmackDown taping in Arizona. I'd like to know if one of them went to visit that man. I'd be curious. Did one of them even go visit this guy on his deathbed? He was hospitalized for almost five months. How utterly disgraceful. Just, just like Butch, Bushwhacker Butch doing a GoFundMe to be buried. How much money did they make on gimmicks from the Bushwhackers? You got a billion dollar corporation. Take less, less than 1%, you greed mongers, of the money you make and set up a fund to help these guys. Help these guys. Come on. And for the scumbags who do, they all, they all made fortunes and pissed it away on wine, women, and song. Let me tell you something. Johnny Valiant was one of my closest friends. He never broke 100 grand. Never broke 100 grand. This is what people don't understand. These guys didn't make fortunes. They're on the road 300 plus days a year, like farm animals being shuttled from city to city, night after night, okay? And they never made until much, much later did the money come in, okay? So, you know, it's like human empathy means something. The guy was a 79-year-old guy. He lost 80 pounds. He suffered mightily for four or five months. Do something for the guy. Come on. Got to do a GoFundMe. Let me say this about, um, because some people have said, well, you know, Vince, for people that were loyal to him or his dad, he'll take care of them. Well, Evan's Evan's right, because whether you were loyal 100% of the time, all the time, you made money for that company. The Bushwhacker Butch thing is really depressing, too. But let me say this, though. Bushwhacker Butch. Yeah, well, yeah, Butch, because Luke was still with us, but Butch sadly passed, and and man, those guys were spectacular. They were wild, too. When they first came in, their first territory in 71 was- Sheep artists. Sheep artists were great. The crazy Kiwis. Sweet. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Nick Williams, uh, they they were super-duper colorful. They were wearing, like, mink stoles and all this colorful stuff. I mean, Billy might have looked at what they might have seen a picture or two of them. They tagged with River Morgan a lot, too, to make a three-man tag. And that's when they were the New Zealand militia. Yeah, yeah, River Morgan. But Billy told me, and I'm sure he told Evan, sure, one of the the things that really broke his heart and disheartened him was Vince Sr. not turning him face Billy thought he, and he was actually right. He had way more charisma than sort of the milk toast backland. And he was hoping to extend his run beyond the set in stone. Like he knew when he signed the contract before they put the strap on him, how, when he was going to lose to backland. And, um, but it, it, it really made sense. And I think Billy was right. And he was ahead of his time, as Russ said, but Vince Sr. just was too afraid to go longer and, and, and or turn him. He hated this shaved head, bald, uh, karate wearing with that horrific finisher that they gave him on his second tour before the third one that Russ remembers, you know, when he came back and they 
showed the video of him with the scorpion or two scorpions on what was his, his two of us on his head showing how tough he was to undergo that surgery but so here's my my thing billy actually tried uh and he was going to set up a base in los angeles for his own promotion after he dropped the strap to backland and he you know filled out the remainder of his contract and then left and came back and get this people don't recall this i have my programs he teamed for his second tour back so he drops the strap to backland he works for Vern Tiemann as a babyface now. They just did a quick turn. Tiemann with Dusty Rhodes, and they go against this all-Nazi, fake German tag team, Von Raschke in his prime before he kind of lost his skill sets, and Horst Hoffman, who was a, like a European shooter. And so it was a long program, like six months. Vern never did put the straps. You know, the fans got pissed off. They were hoping the straps would be put on you know, the charismatic dream team of Dusty Rhodes and superstar Graham. And a lot of people forget that's the only place really where they teamed up as baby faces. So Billy decided he wanted to to actually try to compete against Vince McMahon Sr. It's kind of ill-fated. It was an idea that only lasted about five weeks, but he was going to start his promotion in L.A. against Vince McMahon Sr.'s, one of his closest promoter pals, Mike LaBelle, where Billy had started, he was going to use his best friends, Ivan Koloff, Ken Patera, and Ernie Ladd. And uh, I had verified that with, you know, all of them before uh, Ivan and, and Ernie. And uh, and Ken, you know, reaffirmed. He said it didn't last long, but we were all in. We were ready to go if that's what he wanted to do, because Ken disliked uh, senior and junior McMahon too at, at certain points. It didn't happen, but it would have been interesting had it happened. And this was after Eddie Einhorn tried taking on both Vince Senior and Sam Munchnik, the NWA and the Tri-WF, with the uh, IWA in, from 75 to 77 with Mosker as his champ. But Evan, let me ask you, uh, I, I'm sure you were at, at most all of those, but tell me what your first, all of uh, Billy's title offenses. He like sold out uh, the garden. He had like... I guess he had, maybe it wasn't strictly Madison Square Garden, but he had 18 sellouts out of 19 as champion, which is amazing. But maybe tell people about his rapport with the Grand Wizard as his manager, and then some of these guys that he, you know, he, he went against, the big title defenses. You know, they were all huge. In the, my Grand, the Grand Wizard did the bit where um, somebody wake up Russell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. So uh, the Grand Wizard would would like you know touch his arm like an oar and do the stick as Billy Graham took off the shirt and the Grand Wizard would comb his hair. So basically, Billy Graham was influenced by gorgeous George and Muhammad Ali. I mean, if you break it down, and um, and at the Garden they had they had one match where Bruno wrestles Billy Graham and Billy Graham was the champ. Monsoon's the ref. So Graham goes, I quit, goes back to the dressing room. Next thing you know, Monsoon follows him into the dressing room and he puts him over his shoulder, dumps him in the ring. And it's like the Roman Coliseum. It was like this primeval, like bloodlust roar that, that went through the building. And the building literally shook. I'm not saying this as an as a, a, a 
a phrase or an idiom or whatnot. The building literally shook. This is what the modern fans don't understand when they go, oh, Bruno and Billy, they were just punching and kicking. They don't get it because they weren't physically there. And it's a disservice to these guys. Uh, I, I, saw, I saw the other day some guy on some wrestling page, they go, I didn't like Roddy Piper. All he did was punch and kick. I didn't get it. He wasn't there. He didn't see Heel Piper 1985 in his prime, 84, 85, you know, headlining the garden time and time again. It was like a tornado had hit the place. And when it was the when the Piper match was over, you could breathe again. That's the best way I could explain it. Well, people wanted to see Piper get beat up so much because he 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 made himself into such a, an unbelievable heel, and so you know um, a lot of people that if you just go to a uh, a YouTube match with Piper on it, you don't really know the buildup that led to you know the match itself, where you just wanted to see Piper get just get get beaten, and somehow you would avoid. You know, getting the 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 ultimate punishment, you'd always slide out of it or find some way to 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 escape. And the simplest, and the simplest comparison is it's not the same watching a concert on your computer as being at a concert. You don't get the same effect. And you know, I, I, but it's I, also if you only watch one song by a band. That's another thing too. Is you don't listen to an album, but you're listening to just one song that they've done. And then you judge the band by just one song. Right, right, right. And you're not listening to every, you know, back in the people Not to look at later Billy Graham, but the superstar tie-dye phase uh, from like 1978 going backwards. Because he had, there's a lot of his material on from IWE Japan. On his third tour, this is after he drops the strap to Backlund there. Uh, he just had some minor thing and he went into the hospital. It was like an, I mean, it was a minor thing and word got back and I don't know why they didn't edit it out because no WWF television was live then. It was always taped in the eighties, but Monsoon, here's something. Remember this, Ev? And he says over the air, oh, we're sorry to report superstar Billy Graham passed away. He hadn't. You know, he just had the... Monsoon wrote a column for a Philadelphia newspaper. In the newspaper, he wrote that Billy Graham died in the 80s. Oops. I mean, talk about journalism. Well, when Billy came back, though, with the karate gimmick, the shaved head, and uh, the awful outfit, and was he had trimmed down, he had lost some body mass, people, particularly in the Tri-WF, well, it was then it already changed, dropped one of the W's to WWF. They speculated there was an imposter. It could not be Billy Graham. What about that, Ev? Nah, I mean, he was cutting, He was still cutting great promos, and he busted up Backlund's belt. He, he tore it up. One of the great angles, people should look that up, Billy tearing up the belt. Yeah, so uh, Graham and Backlund went three Madison Square Garden main events in 82. So he was still a draw. He was still a great talker. He wasn't the same in ring. Uh, the last match was a, uh, you know, they had all the lumberjacks around the ring. It was a lumberjack match. And I think Sweet Hansen was the uh, guest ref. And, you know, it was entertaining. It just wasn't 70s superstar Billy Graham. It, it just wasn't as good. But, um, he had, he had a decent run in Florida with Sullivan's Army, and uh, 
I saw them um, with Crockett when they would come into Philly and Baltimore, and um, he wasn't always on top. He was more mid-card. You know, those Crockett years when Billy Graham was there, I say this all the time, they had so much talent. You had the Horsemen, the Road Warriors, you know, Magnum, you know. Midnight Fla- Express. Yeah, yeah, Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express. So guys like Billy Graham and Jimmy Valiant, who were always on top in WWWF, they were mid-card there. But, you know, he didn't have a bad run there. It, it's just his peak was the 70s. And, and you know, that's being realistic. But, um, you know, like I keep saying, when, when people just tear him down as, uh, you know, he wasn't much of a wrestler, he never said he never said he was, you know, uh, Dory Funk or, or Holly Race, you know. But, but Hulk Hogan wasn't that much of a wrestler. on our show many times. He deferred to them, but he knew what his strengths were, and his strengths were great, particularly, again, the tie-dye period. How about this? He, uh, I did shoot him against Harley Race, title versus title. That was in Kansas City at the famous Memorial Auditorium. But the biggest title versus title match he had I wasn't at. George Napolitano shot it. It was either Miami. I think it was Miami, not Tampa. Belt versus belt. Him against Harley. And that was huge. It drew a ton of press. That was the night it rained. It rained horribly. And uh, Johnny Valiant told me it was so slippery in the ring. It was dangerous. And they couldn't do what they wanted to do. It was was an unfortunate set of circumstances. But they had a big crowd. Is that YouTube? Anybody film that, Ev? Do you know? Um, I remember seeing clips on Florida TV in New York, but I don't know if they filmed the card in its entirety. That I don't know. Or just their match, maybe, because there's that, a that, big... That brings up another point, which is that, that Superstar Billy Graham was, was the biggest thing in wrestling when wrestling was arguably at its lowest point. You know, um, that... No, no, no. The 70s were the golden era. The 60s. No, on TV it was not. It was the, the compared to the 70s. The 70s it was big everywhere, from outdoor Los Angeles at a, the L.A. Coliseum for Tolis Blassie for but, Montreal. But, but what Russ is saying has validity. I mean, in the 70s, I would watch WWF at midnight. You know, one hour a week. Now you can watch it every every minute of every day with this. With and they're this. selling out, you know, uh, uh, you know, millions of, you know, the WWE is is worth billions of dollars. It was you not worth billions of dollars. Two, but well, I, you have to compare the two because he was king of of wrestling, and he was one of the best things in wrestling when wrestling was at its lowest point, as far as like being on TV and its no, that visibility. Wasn't, that wasn't the lowest point. There were there were times in the '60s when Bruno wasn't drawing particularly well. And when they do the, um, when they do the Bruno sold out every match at every garden card, you know, that that's hype too. Just like Andre's not seven feet four. I was there many, many times. Bruno and George Steele, you know, was not sold out many times. It wasn't sold out, but in the sixties, they had some, you know, tough nights with, with Bruno on top, Billy Graham as champ, with the exception of maybe Peter Maivia. Um, that was the only one that didn't sell out the last Yeah, pretty much, pretty much that whole run at the Garden, Billy Graham. So maybe Ivan Putski might have been a little short of the 22,000. I'm not sure. But uh, for the most part, Billy Graham sold out the Garden every year. We have 22,000 at Madison Square Garden. What did the Felt Forum? I know it's gone a, a bit. Felt Forum held five or 6,000. So. 
they sold that out too. So you had that on top of uh, gross and in, in attendance. It's pretty amazing. They were getting like 20 bucks a ticket for the Felt Forum, which back then was a lot of money. So, you it's know. Like circuit. You would just see a film of it. That You were just seeing it live, but on TV. Well, watching the, you, just like you were watching Muhammad Ali or Larry Holmes, it was closed circuit, except it was in the next building. So it was amazing that the demand the night Bruno and Billy Graham wrestled and, and Graham came in as champ, they said there was 27,000 people. Now, they might have hyped it. They might have, you know, blew it up a bit. But, but a lot of people paid good money back in those days. So you're talking in, in the late 70s, tickets were 4 to $7 a ticket, which was not big, which was not expensive. But you're still talking $100,000 gates, which was a lot of money, month after month after month. You know, in, in other arenas, Graham didn't do as well. In Nassau Coliseum, he, he wasn't selling out. But uh, Graham wrestled Bruno and Ivan Putski right before he lost the belt to Backlund. And those, in, in the spectrum, and, uh, you know, those venues were sold out. I mean, he... Uh, Garden, Philly Spectrum, Cap Center in D.C., all of those venues. Graham made them a lot of money. So, again, that he needed a GoFundMe at the end, it's disgraceful. These guys need 401ks, health benefits, pensions, the whole deal. Take care yeah, of your... My, my, point was, my point was that wrestling was still in that territorial phase and it hadn't really hit its global phase until yeah, exactly. Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that's true that's true and and so there he, were global he, territories there were a, a number of territories in canada a number in mexico japan and europe i know but i'm like saying for myself like i never saw superstar billy graham wrestle you know i he didn't wrestle a lot in San Francisco. He just didn't. I mean, I know he was in L.A. a lot. He did. He was in San Francisco. He did. You weren't born yet. Born. It was not Russ's fault. He wasn't born yet when Billy Graham spent 14 months wrestling on every Cow Palace, Oakland, uh, Sacramento, Reno, Nevada show, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, he was going over and doing shots at the HIC, Honolulu International Center for Ed Francis and Lord Blair's main eventing against the likes of uh, handsome Johnny Behrend and uh, he had a match against Terry Funk in Honolulu that sold out. Every every time Billy Graham was in the main event in Honolulu, it sold out. And this was before the superstar phase. So he was doing well then. But again, but again, it wasn't big money in Hawaii. No. It was a nice territory. It was beautiful beaches, but they weren't making big money. This is, you know, people think they, they were, were making millions and millions of dollars. Compare it to now where people pay... $850 for not even a ringside seat at a WWE event to get the chair, you know, at a pay-per-view or something. Money Mania. What is it? Money Even, even the recent AEW show out here had floor seats for $1,200. You, you know, I mean. up to. Yeah, just, AEW, just an AEW show because it's just so rare to have them out here in the Bay Area. They, they were selling tickets for $1,200. Before we run out of time, Bill Anderson sent me something because Bill moved to Phoenix to be near Billy when he broke up the school, the EWF school with Jesse Hernandez, and left you know Jesse to run it, the school and the promotion. And he moved from Bakersfield, California and San Bernardino to, to Phoenix. So he's within a stone's throw of Billy. And they would go out to lunch to this Mexican place, their famous Mexican place. Every week they would talk about 
politics and pop culture and entertainment. And uh, and Bill and I had the pleasure of, I call it babysitting, but uh, for Billy Graham when, for example, I, I threw an LA Territory re reunion, which was the promoter, Mike Bucci of High Spots for his Russell Con, his very last, third and last one in LA, asked me to do the opening welcoming day event on day one of three. So I did it as an LA Territory reunion, had everybody there from the office, from all the jobbers to Miguel Alonso, the announcers, everybody who's still alive. And Bill Anderson, for me, drove Billy Graham there from Phoenix to Los Angeles. And then uh, for our, Bill Anderson, I were with and watching Billy, making sure Billy Graham got to everything he had to do at other little small conventions. And the, then the big cauliflower alley where uh, Billy Graham had a, a wonderful moment of telling Carl Lauer to F himself when uh, some afternoon speaker, uh, a daytime speaker for a panel for wrestlers didn't show last minute. And Carl Lauer kind of ordered Carl, not asking, but like ordered, you know, you, Billy, just go in and maybe do a talk on giving promos, something like that. And, and Billy was upset. He wasn't treated with respect, but he, uh, he did it anyway. Bill Anderson, I dragged him there and he had his buddies in the evening, you know, the awards thing. So people say Billy Graham didn't get all of his flowers. We can talk about the WWE or WWF then Hall of Fame thing where Billy got his ring, but he also got a plaque, uh, a big one from that year's Cauliflower Alley. But he's up there and in the audience are his cohorts. Uh, they're all kind of blitzed. Uh, Iron Sheik, Cosro, and Kenny Patera. And uh, they caused like a near riot at a cauliflower alley in Las Vegas. I forget the year, maybe 2007, but it was a lot of fun. Ken Patera had all this love for Billy. He told me to remind people, you know, they traveled the world together. Bill Anderson, all those years with Billy. And Bill Anderson, too, like Paul Bashan, is facing some tremendous health crisis. So I hope people will just keep them in their hearts, in their thoughts, send good vibes to Butcher Paul Bashan and uh, Bill Anderson, who has had a number of heart issues and surgeries and stuff and dropped a ton of weight. Uh, like Billy. Valerie put out a, a statement to um, one of the biggest journalists, I won't say his name here, and it made it look like he talked one-on-one, -on -one, but he was just typing up verbatim the public statement Valerie put out, but she uh, uh, was not going to uh, pull the plug on Billy as the doctors had suggested, you know, saying there was nothing else they could do for him. She was asking people to, like I said, send out good vibes, whatever you believe in to keep him going, but he had cheated death. Bill uh, and Patera reminded me, Billy Graham, you know, we thought we'd have lost him, Ev, you remember, many times, like in the last, say, 15 years, he had crisis after crisis, liver, kidney transplants, hip transplants from the, you know, he admitted he, uh, you know, like that, that event where I stayed with our friend who's passed away too, Dale Pierce, but I spent one night, you know, I stayed the first night at uh, Dale Pierce and his fiance wife's place and then at Billy and Valerie's place. And uh, I have a photo I'll send Russ to put up uh, of Bill and Valerie at his home. And this was like 1995. And uh, he had a born again thing. I'll make this quick. At, a, at his Phoenix church where he helped the pastor he, he did a lot of stuff during the weekdays, but he helped the pastor, sometimes gave, you know, 
talks, like exposing himself, saying that he'd gone through drugs and, and uh, performance enhancers, but he was tried to clean up his life. So he has a wrestling ring at this gigantic, beautiful church in Phoenix. And he trans, he brought me in and Linda Rufa, who, you know, has long since left wrestling photography. We're covering this thing. We've never seen a ring in, in a church. He, Jake Roberts and Bill Anderson give testimonials. At, at, like the prior things that Billy had done there. And then Jake wrestles Bill Anderson in the ring, breaks out the snake, you know, does the whole thing. But in a church, it was the weirdest thing we'd ever seen or covered. The place was packed and the place was rocking, but it was a church of non-wrestling fans. They kind of knew who these guys were, but weren't traditional wrestling fans. Uh, so it was quite the thing, but that's where Bill Anderson became born again, you know, legit. Jake's did not take, but uh, Bill wanted me to to get that out there, that, you know, it was thanks to Billy, he became a Christian and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and you know, Billy too. Billy there, that was the first time I saw, when I went to his house and I saw he had like 20 paintings he'd done on canvas, big canvas, acrylics of wrestlers. Like at that cauliflower alley where he caused all of the, the chaos and fun uh, with Ivan, uh, excuse me, Iron Sheik and Patera, he presented both of them with paintings he'd done of them and brought there. He'd done a lot of other ones, uh, you know, for Sheik Farhat, and he did one of Eddie and Mike Graham, and he was a fantastic painter. Ev, you remember? Tell me what you remember about the the paintings. People forget Scott, about Scott Wilson, the uh, historian, a good buddy of mine. He he bought some of Billy Graham's uh, paintings, and it wasn't just wrestling. He would paint, you know, animals and anything. He was a Segura quality Cap. artist. Quality artist. And uh, now I have a question for you, Evan, and that is uh, while we have a little bit of time. What was it like working with him on set for 350 days? And how did you even get him on the, the, well, the movie? Well, I did not interview him for 350 days. I interviewed him for a different project. Um, so face-to-face, -face, he was very gracious, very, um, you know, accommodating. Um, Scott Epstein, another lost friend. Another lost friend brought Billy Graham to me for an interview in person. Um, and I, I, the guy couldn't do enough for you. And um, it was, you know, it was just a pleasure and an honor to spend time with the guy and uh, very open and honest. And, you know, I mean, when I do interviews with legends, it, it's from the heart, you know, I'm not grilling them, you know, every minute detail of their existence, like uh, some of the shoot guys. And uh, let me just say this while, while we're still, we still have a few minutes. Uh, Hannibal, Hannibal is very, was very, very close with Billy and really there for him. And, uh, you know, that was a dear friend of his. So sometimes it's more than just the celebrity, um, you know, with these wrestlers, it's, it's, it's close, close friends. And, uh, Hannibal was, was there in hospitals helping the guy out, you know, uh, he was there at his bedside. Um, I tell people the worst day of my life, the worst day of my life was the day Tiger Khan died. And for those who don't know him, he, um, 
He wrestled for the Hearts up in Calgary. So, you know, for, and Russ, of course, could say the same thing about Bison Smith. They were they were close. So sometimes it goes more more than just you admire an athlete, you admire a celebrity. And um, Billy Graham always did good by me, always did good by Mike. You know, so we're looking. Friendship with Scotty Epstein, though, that was one of the true. Scotty looked out and honest, ethical, looked out for Billy. Oh, yeah. Billy, okay. Scott. Dating back to when Scott produced that bodybuilding, fitness, and wrestling magazine from like 76 on for about five like, years. They were friends. It wasn't just about, you know, selling merch and selling autographs. And, you know, some of these uh, agents and vendors are pond scum. Some of them. I mean, the others are honorable guys who love wrestling. But, uh, you know, uh, but Scott Epstein was also a, a tragic loss. And, uh you know, Scott Epstein was a teacher and a principal. He wasn't just a quote-unquote wrestling guy. He was, uh, you know, a good human being and a family guy. In fact, the night he died, he was he was asleep. He got a phone call, and it, there was a family issue. And he got in the car half asleep and half groggy. The same car me and him went to, you know, God knows how many different wrestling shows and conventions. And you know, he died in that car. He struck a tree. So, you know, it's it's a tough business. And along the way, we've lost a lot of people. But, you know, let me let me end on this. Um, you know, Billy Graham was one of a kind. I mean, this this guy, it was like he dropped from Mars. I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like this in, in the 70s. I mean, you know, charisma off the charts. And, um, you know, he was the first really in my memory. He was the first really sculpted wrestler that I'd seen, you know, other there were so many of the other like, you know, wrestlers who were like, you know, uh, 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 like Larry the Axe Hennig. I mean, you knew they were big and they were strong. Oh, or, Earl, Main, Earl Maynard preceded Billy Graham. Sailor R. Thomas, Dory Dixon, Earl Maynard. Really but not weird. looking like superstar Billy Graham. Oh, they were big guys. They were big. They, they were guys. big Oscar, guys, but Oscar superstar Billy Graham had muscles on muscles. He so did they. So did they. Yeah. Billy, he looked like he was ready to just Billy pop. Billy had legit friendship with Arnold Scola. They worked out before the New York stuff, before he even got uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's what I'm yeah, talking about. Scola, Scola, Scola was, I don't think Arnold Scola lifted yeah, anything more than... Yeah, not a They worked out in Venice Beach at that famous Gold's Gym and the restaurant nearby. You could actually see them in that that restaurant there. Uh, this was like again in '72, as early as '72. Again, the tie dye started in Los Angeles. Don't let anybody tell you it started in the AWA because it was already there. He was wearing the insane stuff. We're wondering where is he getting these outfits and the the tie dye T shirts and all that stuff. Nobody saw in with my thing. There was nobody more colorful in, in my period. And uh, man, he was exciting. And just the electricity in the tie dye superstar Graham phase, just to see the people go gaga over this guy. They loved him. As much as he tried to be a heel, the people loved him. And let me just let me just quickly say that Billy Graham was the cool heel before Roddy Piper in WWF, before Randy Savage, it was not the norm back then. Back then, we were a mock audience and we hated the heels. But Billy Graham was so cool, you couldn't hate him. 
you know? It was like... Well, he had a twinkle in his eye, though, when Ernie would talk, the TV I remember, and everybody should go look at that. So look at the 76, 77, 78 superstar Billy Graham, Tri-WF, yeah. Japan, wherever, and look at the twinkle in his eye. Like, he'd be smiling. I mean, he knew he was cool. He knew the ladies loved him, you know, his promos, all of that stuff. And it's all true. We saw it. And let me, ta- let me take this to another place real quick. Lou Albano with the Valiant Brothers and the Grand Wizard with Billy Graham, these guys were riffing off of each other, improv like jazz musicians. These guys were performance artists. This wasn't some scripted, stilted, WWE numbing, stultifying promo like today where you know they just say the same nonsense week after week. These guys themselves didn't know what they were going to say. John, Johnny Valiant said to me, they go into the studio, they would cut promos all day. All they would say was, August 1st, you're wrestling this guy. You know, and they were total improv, total improv. These guys were improvisational geniuses, just like jazz musicians, you know, artists, artists. And Billy Graham, you know, say what you want about Billy Graham in the ring. You can't tell me there's five guys who were better talkers than Billy Graham. I would put him number one. But, you know, Dusty was a great talker and Flair was a great talker. And Pat. Okay, even Flair admits he took, he lifted from Billy Graham. Let me just say, take just one line out of a much longer Billy Grahamism, the man of the hour. The man with the power. The man too, too sweet, sweet to be ever sour. Too sweet, too sweet to be sour. Yep. Well, that's that's a great one to end it on, guys. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me just get sure. in a quick plug. Sure. Pro Wrestling Stories. I just wrote Billy Graham's 10 Greatest Matches, and it's from the heart, and it says why I love this guy. So check out that piece. And, of course, 350 Days, Bret Hart and Billy Graham. They're the stars of the movie. Check it out. And uh, also we got the Wrestling Then and Now documentary on Tubi and Plex, and there's a lot of lost friends in there also, Nikolai and Kowalski. Don Arnold, speaking of L.A., Don Arnold's in wrestling then and now. The Dr. So, Death, the original. Yeah, Dr. Death, yeah. Death. So, also, I want to throw in there, two days ago would have been Andre the Giant's 77th birthday. I think a lot of people didn't realize. Oh, you know. that is online. Andre against Billy in an arm wrestling thing, and then the subsequent match two weeks later at the Houston Coliseum. That is on YouTube. Go look at Andre in his peak against Billy Graham is super. I saw star. them wrestle at the Nassau Coliseum. They wrestled each other in the main event. Yeah. Wow. A lot of memories, guys. And unfortunately, they get more distant. R.I.P. Superstar. We love you. Really, really. Yeah, All right, everyone. That's the show for this week. Um, glad having you on, Evan, even in sad circumstances. And I'm glad you could make such wonderful contributions. Thank tonight. you. Thank you. All right. Good night, everybody. See you next week. See you, guys.